Dr. Michael Roizen. Dr. Michael Roizen. You, the Owner's Manual Radio Show. You're listening to You, the Owner's Manual Radio Podcast from Radio MD, iHeart, or wherever you download us from. Thank you for doing that. We have a great guest for you today. In fact, we could be together since we live in the same town. Lisa Damore, DrLisaDamore.com, has written two New York Times bestsellers. This one should be as well, The Emotional Lives of Teenagers. I actually can't imagine what it is to bring up a teenager in this climate. It was tough enough before social media, at least I felt it was. That's the difference in generations between Lisa and her two teenagers and my now grown children who grew up in a time before social media and stage three of the internet, at least. The book is The Emotional Live of Teenagers, and as usual, you are listening to the B segment of You, the Owner's Manual podcast. The A's, always the latest medical news of the week, and what it means to you. The B's are great guests, like Lisa, Life's First Naturals, naturals.com, and the Great Age Reboot are our sponsors. I should, before we get in there, tell you that if you have more questions for Lisa, you can listen to her podcast, asklisa.com is her podcast. And Lisa, thank you. What motivated you to write this book, and how does it help us, if you will, raise teenagers. You've got two teenage girls now, right? Yes, I do. I have a 12-year-old and a 19-year-old, so I'm on either end of adolescence. And then I've cared for teenagers for nearly 30 years in my practice. So teenagers are at my center of my professional world, center of my personal world, and it's really hard to be a teenager. And it's really hard to be a teenager right now. When I was a teenager, I thought all I did was I wanted to be a physician, so I just kept my head down, played sports, had a few friends that we played sports with. Parents threw me out every day, uh, and all I did was study so I could get good enough grades to get in the college that would get me into medical school and had a driving ambition to be really good at sports, and I didn't know what social, you know, social media in our era was talking on the phone. And it started out with being, I don't even know what you call it, but it was a three-party phone. Three-way calling. That came in when I was a teenager. Three-way calling. I remember very well. No, no. This is before that. Okay. This is when you had multiple parties had the same phone. Ah. And so you had to make sure no one else was listening in. And then you got single-party calling. When my kids were growing up, there was three-way calling, and cell phones just came in at that time. They weighed about 20 pounds, and you carried them with a backpack. So now the emotional life has probably not changed. Hormones are raging, and what's happened? So there were two main reasons I decided to write this book when I did. One was that even prior to the pandemic, The way we were talking about mental health started to really veer off course from how we understand it on the academic and clinical side. And what I mean by that is that there was a growing equation between 
being mentally healthy and feeling good. Like you know that you're mentally healthy, you know your kid's mentally healthy if there's a sense of feeling good. That's not accurate. That's not how we think about mental health. And so what I wanted to do in this book was to bring across a much more accurate definition, which is that mental health is about having feelings that make sense in their context and then managing those feelings effectively in a way that brings relief and does no harm. Give me a hint of what you mean in their context. So you've got a 12-year-old, the context of school. Give me a hint. So say a 12-year-old has a pretty big project that they have due, and they've known for a long time it's supposed to be due, and they've been ignoring it, ignoring it, and they suddenly become very upset and anxious when they realize that they've got next to no time left. Okay, so the kid's upset. That's entirely appropriate to the circumstance they're in. We actually would want to see distress in that setting. We'd be more concerned if the kid were completely indifferent in that moment. So we don't see that distress as inherently problematic. In fact, we see it as evidence that he works quite well. And what we want to see next is, how does he handle it? Does he handle it in a way where he decides he's not going to do this to himself again? He's going to learn from this mistake. He's going to get down to business. Or does he handle it in a way that is going to give him relief, but not work so well for him in the long term, like blaming other people or minimizing him of his part in it? So we don't mind distress as psychologists. We fully expect to see it as part of the human condition and definitely as part of being a teenager. We're much, much more attentive to how distress is handled and whether it's handled in ways that end up being fundamentally adaptive or over time maladaptive. That's really where we're most invested. Now, what happens when the other kids, it used to be they would be, how do I call it, perfect with you in the lunchroom. Now it's on social media and gets broadcast, right? Yeah, social media adds such an extraordinary layer of complexity to kids' lives. And I think that part of what's so challenging about social media, and we have a lot of data to show this, is that for most kids, it is simultaneously a really pleasant or joyful experience and also an experience with significant downsides. I think in my experience, certainly as a clinician, it's never the case that it's like all good or all bad. So in addition to there being elements that are quite taxing for kids, such as the fact that things that might have stayed small when we were kids are going to get very big now, there's also the reality that kids are very reluctant to give it up or they're getting a lot out of it that they don't want to say goodbye to. Now, what do you do I should say, the book is wonderful. Again, it's Dr. Lisa Damore, and I'll spell that out, D-R-L-I-S-A-D-A-M-O-U-R.com is how you can find out more. But you talk about how to get boys to talk about their feelings. It was much easier for us to get our daughter to talk about her feelings. Is that typical that girls will talk about feelings much more than boys? Or is that, as I remember, the number of conversations I had with my son about his feelings is probably countable on one finger. I probably wasn't as good a parent as I should have been in that. Thank God for my wife. Well, so we do see that in the data. We do see that when we talk in sort of broad gender strokes, We tend to socialize girls to be much more fluent in the verbal expression of emotion, to talk with them about their feelings, to ask them about their feelings. And then, of course, what happens is that girls get together with other girls and they continue to practice and develop that skill. 
And then we tend to socialize boys to be tough, to shake it off, to solve the problem as opposed to dwell on the problem. And then, of course, boys get together often with other boys, and they sort of deepen that way of thinking about emotionality, that it's you know a sign of vulnerability or a sign of weakness. And so then they can actually amplify that. But one of the things that I learned while writing the book, and this is one of my favorite things about writing books, right, is that you learn as you go, is that for boys, because of how socialization operates in our culture, talking about feelings can become quite feminized. It can be seen as sort of a girl thing to do, so to say, like finger quotes, girl thing to do. And then one of the things that becomes very tricky, and you sort of reference this, is often at home, the parent, if they're in a two-parent heterosexual home, the parent who's asking and talking about feelings is often mom. And that can, in fact, reinforce for boys the belief that talking about feelings is a girl thing to do. So one of the things that became very clear to me as I was writing is that if we want boys to develop a fluency with talking about emotion, which we do, it's a highly adaptive way to manage feelings, it becomes imperative that the men in their lives initiate those conversations, talk openly about their own emotions, create evidence for boys that talking about feelings is not just a girl thing to do, but it's something that everybody does. Lisa, I love a section in here, empathy goes further than we think. Talk to us about that, would you? Absolutely. So I'm sure you had this experience as a parent. I have it all the time as a parent where, you know, it's seven or eight or nine o'clock at night. I am trying to shut everything down. And then standing in front of me is an upset teenager. And they tell me what's wrong. And my first instinct is to try to solve the problem, both because I don't want them to suffer and also because I just want it to go away, right? Like, just make it stop. And usually that doesn't go well, right? We often find that they're resistant to our solutions or they find, you know, our response to be aggravating to them. And what we want to remember is so often when anyone, but especially perhaps teenagers, comes to us just to share something that is painful or upsetting or disruptive to them, so often all they want is for someone to say, oh man, like that stinks, or I'm sorry to hear that. And so often for teenagers, that is everything they were looking for. And if parents can provide that, I think they will be amazed by how often their kid says, yes, thank you. And then the kid's ready to move on, that we don't always need solutions. And in fact, we don't even have solutions a lot of the time. Yeah, you know, I must admit that we use empathy a lot as physicians now, but I don't think I ever used it as when dealing with my kids. I was always trying to solve the issue, as you said. So that part of the book, The Emotional Lives of Teenagers, was very poignant for me. So the book is called The Emotional Lives of Teenagers, Raising Connected, Capable, and Compassionate Adolescents. It's about both boys and girls. It's by Dr., and you can find out more about this, Dr. Lisa Damour, D-A-M-O-U-R, drlisademour.com, and she has a podcast, Ask Lisa, as well. She lives in Shaker Heights, so not far, probably less than a mile away from what we exchanged as neighborhoods beforehand. So, Lisa, thanks very much for doing this. 
We, of course, as usual, are sponsored by lifesfirstnaturals.com, the makers of both Truebiotics and Bovine Colostrum. You can see why I take those and the randomized double-blind controlled trials of those on their website, lifesfirstnaturals.com. And, of course, my own website, greatagereboot.com, and the Reboot Your Age app um, for people Lisa's age, not her teenagers. But in any case, this is a great book by a New York Times bestselling author who obviously has pretty darn good experience as well as knowledge from her own kids, Dr. Lisa Damour, D-R-L-I-S-A-D-A-M-O-U-R.com is the website. Thank you, Caitlin, for engineering, but especially thank you, our listeners, for downloading us. Do tell your friends about us. Do tell your friends, whether they have teenagers or I'm going to save this for my grandkids who are not there yet but will be soon, about the emotional lives of teenagers. Thanks again. We'll be back next week with another great guest. You'll want to go to the A section of last week where we talked about the new recommendations and the lack of recommendation for boosters. That is, don't get them if you're under 50 and probably don't get them if you're over 50. The new CDC, FDA recommendations and the new data from the Cleveland Clinic. We'll be back next week. I hope you are too. Thanks again.